0: This is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching by Bethany Allen is part seven in our series, Hearing God. How long does it take to make the woods? As long as it takes to make the world. The woods is present as the world is. The presence of all its past and all of its time to come. It is always finished. It is always being made. The act of its making forever greater than the act of its destruction. It is part of eternity, for its end and beginning belong to the end and the beginning of all things. The beginning lost in the end. The end in the beginning. These are a few lines from one of my favorite poems by Wendell Berry. And I, yep. Yep. And I cannot tell you how many mornings I have found myself lost in this refrain and this story and imagery. And how many times I have read or recited these words. And as I did, my mind and my heart uh, became evoked or provoked to see the world in a new way. And not just the world, but my world, my life in a new way. The woods of my world forever being made and the act of its making forever greater than the act of its destruction. These are words that linger in me from week to week, in moments when the lights get dim and my hope for what is to come is failing, or when my weakness clouds my ability to see that I am more than uh, the sum total of my failures. The act of its making forever greater than the act of its destruction. Poetry has this unique way of teaching us to see, of giving us sight where we may not have been able to see before. Through language and rhythm and imagination, poetry helps us see the world differently, helps us see our world differently. And poets help us reframe and open our eyes to what might be right in front of us. This kind of literature can wake us up It can thrust us back to memories and truth we have known consciously or subconsciously, and not just in our minds, but in our souls. Poetry can get our attention like few things in this world can, whether it's through a lyric from your favorite rap song or the cadence of a Shakespearean play. Poetry is language for the soul that demands we see something we have not seen before. Now, here's what I know from Josh who was totally out on sabbatical but snuck into Bridgetown this morning. You have been in a, uh-huh. You have been in a series called Hearing God. Yeah? Yep. Well, I sure hope so. And in it, uh, you have learned in hope I mean in the hopes that Josh has taught this or strangers have taught this or your people have taught this that God speaks through the living word through Jesus that God also speaks through the scriptures, the written word, that God speaks to us through the gift of prophecy and that God speaks to the soul. Now, here's what I know. Last week, Kiana taught a brilliant teaching on God speaking through creation, yeah? Yeah. The woman's fire. It, it's a lot to follow up on, but, but I want to share a funny story with you all about why I'm going to teach uh, part two of her teaching. Uh, at Bridgetown, we got some... Uh, Some things tangled up, and I was supposed to teach a different sermon when Josh asked me to preach this that was going to be on Pentecost, and we were going to go after Acts 2 together, but then my pastor said to me, "Uh, why don't you speak on the Spirit speaking through creation? I thought, great idea, and then I forgot to tell Josh. So um, all that to say, um, this is only part two because it has to be, because I didn't have a lot of time this week to write a teaching about Pentecost. That said, in all seriousness... I've had to wonder, not in like a um, hyper it kind of way, um, but I've wondered if maybe God has something more to say to you. So um, by faith, I'm just offering that and trusting that by the Spirit. So today, the Spirit speaks through creation, part two. Yeah? All right. So we're going to do this in three movements. Are you ready to move with me? All right. David's poetry. Jesus' warning and an invitation to see again. Those are our three movements, and we're going to rock through them tonight. So let's get started. David's poetry. Now, much like the poetry I just read, in Psalm 19, we find a poem of David. It's a window into how David saw the world, into his experience with creation and with God. In this infamous psalm or poem, it's laced with metaphor and language meant to provoke our hearts to wonder meant to provoke us, the reader, to see something that maybe we haven't seen before. David, the beautiful lyricist, allows us through this psalm to observe what I believe to be a holy moment of personal worship. And at the same time, we find his worship inviting us to see or to recognize God's voice the way that he did. So, in order to best understand that or to enter into this, we have to consider a few things. The first thing we have to consider is David's context. This is going to help us understand a bit about where he's coming from. So, what was David's context? How did he get into a place that would cause him to write what he did, to observe the world as he was? Was this bro on a camping trip? Was he enjoying a weekend with the boys? What was going on, David? We don't know. Now, the truth is, we don't have an exact timeline for when David wrote this specific psalm, so we can't be sure exactly. But what we do know from history is that on many occasions, David found himself in creation or in the wilderness, sometimes because he was shepherding or tending to his flock, but other times, and often later in life, we know that he was in the wilderness or in creation by force, not by choice. When he was there by force, we do know that David was living off the land and in creation, apart from all comforts and luxuries, and that he was forced to often run the landscape of his surrounding countryside because, in short, and that's a whole other story for Josh to teach you about when he's back, but his predecessor king wanted to kill him. Wah, wah, wah. (laughs) Now, I'm sure that when David was in creation, he understood the common and natural beauty that was surrounding him. But I'm also sure, or at least a little certain, that that probably wasn't his focus when he found himself there. David spent years of his life outside, running, hiding, tending to sheep, surveying the land, and living, like having a life in the wilderness. So what was it that allowed him to see beyond his circumstances, beyond the context he found himself in, to find what most of us probably wouldn't? What was it that allowed him to see the things we hear him speak about in this poem? I think the answer to that um, is is wrapped up in a bit of his outlook altogether. David, when in the wilderness, was often in desperate situations, sometimes when confronted by wild animals, and other times when confronted and hunted by other people, (laughs) Even after he had already been anointed and declared king, he, instead of taking the throne, hid in the land for at least four years before he actually ruled the land. So David was regularly running and hiding and fighting and living in the wilderness. Now, we know from the scriptures that he was a man often desperate in light of his circumstances and his context. He was desperate for God's help, desperate to know God's promises, desperate for God's voice. So what about the wilderness? About the nature that surrounded him allowed him to find God's voice in moments of peace and fear? What allowed him to recognize and see what most of us would not be able to see in those circumstances? These questions are really central to understanding what David has to say and central to what he's drawing our attention to in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6. So we're going to do this together. I want you to hold those questions in the back of your mind while we try to enter into this poem again together. Sound good? Yeah. Okay, there's at least three students in the room. So I want to remind you, too, in case you want to send me an email, um, that this is poetry, poetry. So we're going to do our best to explore uh, David's metaphors together in the hopes of being able to see what he sees. That's all we're going to do tonight. Sound good? Yeah. Great. So David starts out with this great statement that to me, this is not a real interpretation, it's not Bible, but it's just how I imagine it. He starts out with this blanket statement: "The heavens declare the glory of God." <clears throat> and this line, if you're like that, is not how it was read. Fine. Uh, If you don't read it that way, to me, it's kind of just like a strong statement in a poem. But if you don't read it that way, it could also be read, The heavens are telling the story. The heavens are making us aware of God's abundance, of his glory, or of his reputation. And when we read something like this, with this kind of descriptive language, it should make us want to ask a question or two. And the question that comes to my mind, at least at first, is how? How? How do the heavens declare the glory of God? Well, when someone mentions the location of something, often we look in that direction. So when I hear the heavens, I immediately look up to the sky or the heavens. And if I do that, I can see its vastness. I can see the heavens' endlessness. I can see the clouds' ever-evolving form, which means that this poetry is more than just a gentle expression from David. His metaphor here is calling us to see a truth about God that can be summed up, he says, in the image of the sky. This invitation is meant to make us aware or to move us to consider God outside of our tiny little boxes or perceived realities and to know, like the sky, his vastness, his endlessness, his everywhereness. This opening line tells us something about David and the way he was seeing the world. The way he was able to hear and see and know God's voice. How he, beyond just naming the creation that was in front of him, was able to observe and experience the reverb of God's nature through what he was observing. Through the creation that surrounded him. Now, David continues on in this poem, and he does so using more language around the sky. He says that day after day and night after night, speech or God's language is being poured out and that knowledge is being revealed. This imagery, again, is meant to cast our minds onto the dynamic, not static, nature of God and onto the fact that he is a speaking God, a communicating God. David says that there is some kind of language being poured out and spoken all the time through creation. Day and night, speech is being poured out. David has observed up close the days, the cadence and the rhythm of day and night, seasons, never stopping. Can you imagine living outside for four years? It's like that becomes up close and personal. So David is saying I've observed this reality this dynamic reality about God and the language seems to be pouring forth speaking to the heart of those who will listen. God speaks a language through his creation a continual message about who he is and how he works. Language. Language is the means of connection. It's how we relate to one another. And this refrain of David's calls us to consider the relational realities of God to us. God is always speaking, pouring out language, and not just to some, but as sure as the day and the night will come, he is revealing knowledge about himself, about his creation to those who have been created. David's imagery around This language, though, as we read in verse 4, is without words. He tells us that there is still something being spoken, that there is a thread of language. If you look in the Hebrew, that's kind of the line. It's like talks about this cord or this thread woven all throughout the earth that transcends the boundary lines of geography or ethnicity or tribe or tongue. And so basically he's saying that as this language is being poured out, it transcends all of those things, that if you just pulled on it, you would hear God's language being poured out. Everyone on the earth can know the language of God if we will just listen. Now finally, David ends this first part of his poem by talking again about the heavens. And so metaphorically, our eyes jump to the skies, and this time we find the sun now central to his lyrics. David would have been very familiar with the sun and its power and its heat Unlike most of us, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I'm a Floridian, so I am aware. Some of you are from, like, Arizona, so you are aware. But most of us here not. But David, he is totally aware. And so he goes on and he observes that God has, and this is the phrase that he uses, God has pitched a tent for the sun. Such a weird phrase. And to us who are hearing it, we're like, okay, weird, weird imagery, weird metaphor, but whatevs. And yet here we see that that David is comparing the son to God. Now this phrase he uses, yes, it isn't meant for us necessarily to hear it the same way the first century readers would have heard it. But when they would have heard this, it would have been a call back to them. To the time that Moses pitched a tent for Yahweh. Remember that? And so... Basically, David's saying here that the sun is a spiritual being who gives life to the earth and all of its creation like God was giving life to Israel from the tent. This imagery is meant to draw us again to the author of life and to remind us of our place and where our true life comes from. Now that is six lines of a poem that will slam you to the floor if you're willing to listen, right? Talk about a poetry slam. I don't know if people call it that. Yeah, that was pretty good, huh? Yeah. Now, we're going to stop there because there's a lot that could be said, but I just want to stop, and I just want to enter in again to this reflection of David. And I just want to note this, that he is saying there is a nature and bigness of God, and that there is a witness of God in days and seasons, that the beauty all around us, the beauty even of the sun, it's all a response to God's presence with us and David was able to see that all of this told a story about God and while this poetry is beautiful and I think most of us in this room would say yeah that's totally true I've kind of observed that in creation it should cause us to move beyond just that to asking what gave David the ability to see to hear God's voice this way in and through creation despite his varying circumstances. And more importantly, it should cause us to ask, when was the last time I saw that way? When was the last time you saw a sunrise or you tasted a fresh piece of sourdough bread or you held the hand of someone you love and you thought this? This declares the glory of God. This is what God's voice sounds like. David observed that we can hear God's voice in creation. And in this poetry and in many other poems in this book, we find an invitation to join him in seeing what he saw in experiencing God and experiencing his voice, his speaking all around us through creation. And while we could just take this as a little nudge towards God's presence and go home or eat snacks, as I heard will be happening soon, I think there's actually more for us. Because we know from the scriptures that David isn't the only one who speaks about God this way, about God's voice being alive in and through what he created. Paul also made a powerful statement about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He said this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul, amongst other writers of the Old and New Testament, understood what David was saying. And Paul also knew that there was something important about this reality for those who want to know God and who want to hear his voice. And I can't help but think that's significant, especially for the disciple of Jesus. That it's meant, that we're meant to see and hear and get this reality not just once, but we're meant to pay attention to it over and over again. I wonder if Paul and these other authors knew, like we know, how easy it is to miss it to become totally used to the world around us or how easy it is to look at these things and consider God but not actually see him in it to miss not just something but to miss the voice of God to us altogether in first john chapter not first john because <laughs> i was going to lie to you about a chapter no in john chapter 9 jesus speaks to this phenomenon of missing something that's right in front of you, and he speaks about it specifically to those who claim to love him and know him most. He speaks to this warning that we all have uh, or we all should be aware of, um, especially when it comes to hearing his voice and hearing him uh, when he's speaking to us in plain sight. So if you're following along, this is our second movement. This is Jesus's warning. So I'm going to just give you a little bit of of a summary of John chapter 9. Is that okay? Okay, and then I'm going to read you some stuff from the Bible, which is also helpful, yeah? Yeah, especially because you're at church. Okay, so uh, in this text, John chapter 9, are you familiar with it maybe a little bit? Maybe you will be when you hear the story. So in this text, we find Jesus getting ready to heal a blind man, and this is a blind man who is blind from birth, at least that's what we're told in this story. And Jesus does this wild, weird, honestly very weird thing where he spits in the mud and slaps that on a man's eyes and then he can see again so whatever exegete that on your own time anyway the man can see again which is like great news so everything's good right well yes and sort of because uh if you follow the story along a little bit further the town doesn't seem to get what's happening So first we read about his neighbors, this man's neighbors, struggling to recognize him is what the text says, which is strange because, again, um, they had their sight and he gained his sight. So it's all very weird. Again, a story I'd like to ask Jesus about, but whatever, man. Um, Him seeing threw you off so much that you didn't recognize him. Whatever. So weird. But anyway... The story goes on, and it doesn't get much better for this guy. In verse 13, the neighbors are still freaking out, and so they bring this man to see the Pharisees, the, the local religious leaders of the day. And he graciously, in my opinion, gives them an account of what happened, and they don't believe him. So the whole town is without a doubt killing this man's vibe at this point. And things only continue to escalate. They get his parents involved. Yikes, they don't help much. And then finally, uh, this man makes his way back to Jesus with a few Pharisees in tow. And this is where I'm going to read John chapter um, 9, starting in verse 35. And this is what happens next. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. This is of the temple. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who, will, those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that text, but here's what I want us to get. Most of it largely comes from the last verse we just read because it's there that Jesus essentially says to the religious people, the people who should have been able to recognize him and recognize what was happening, he says this, it's about sight, It's about sight, and you can't see. It's about sight. It's about recognizing God, recognizing his voice and his presence among you, beyond what you can perceive with your eyes. It's about sight. Jesus knows that in all of us there is a propensity to miss him to miss what he's up to. And in this text, we see so clearly that even the best of us, the the most trained eye can miss him even when he's standing right in front of them. So, when was the last time you saw a sunrise or tasted a fresh piece of sourdough bread or held the hand of someone you love and thought, this, this declares the glory of God? The Son of Man came so that we might see. So the question we have to ask, especially when it comes to this topic, where sight translates to the voice of God, to a communicating presence of God, the question we have to ask is, do we? Can you see? Or is something blocking your sight? Is something distorting your vision? Now, I am not a doctor, nor the daughter of a doctor, though it would be my dream to be a doctor, you know, maybe at another time, another place. Um, So I got to do a little research for this teaching. I'm gonna give you some doctor information. Are you up for it? Yeah, I also wanna say that I have been watching Grey's Anatomy for over 10 years, so I also feel like I'm slightly qualified for this. Please don't send me an email about that. I'm one of those people who has to follow it all the way to the end. Um, Now, here's, here's what I've learned in my research. When it comes to physical sight, clinically, there are three major obstacles to perfect vision. The first is blurry vision, which you're like, yeah, yeah, let me give you a little bit more of the medical speak here. Now, often, blurry vision is caused by the cornea or the lens of the eye having a different or unique shape, and so it causes blurriness, yeah? Some of you know about that because you have glasses. Uh, The second cause is irritation which can be caused by internal reactions happening within the body or external environmental factors. Now, the third obstacle to sight is disease, or more specifically, a disease called glaucoma. This is a disease that damages the optic nerve, which needs to be healthy in order for you to have any sight at all. Now, for some of you, this is your moment in the gathering to actually remember to schedule that optometrist appointment, so go ahead and do that. Uh, But for the rest of us, there's something in here that, while I know it is totally cheesy, speaks to the obstacles I think we're up against when it comes to seeing or recognizing God like David did. And while our three major obstacles are similar in nature, they are different in name. Our obstacles often come in the form of distortion, distraction, and obstruction. And so I'm going to take a moment to talk about each because I think each one is really important when it comes to hearing God's voice or our ability to see God all around us. So the first up is distortion. Much like blurry vision, distortion is all about the lens through which we view the world. And the truth is that most of the time, if you have a distorted lens, at least at the beginning, you rarely know it. Distortion is usually subtle and it comes through tiny bends or straight lines that orient in a particular but barely noticeable direction. This means that we may think we are seeing clearly, but only recognize that's not true when a test comes or a new lens is put in front of us. Distortion can translate into a lot of different things these days. And a lot of things to each of you personally. I've got my own. Can I just trust that you're going to do that work individually while I speak to just two that I think are really significant for us to consider? Great. There's at least three of you in here who are going to go after it, which I respect and appreciate. So the rest of you can sit with that a little bit. Now, again, there are a couple things that really stand out to me, particularly in this area, and just something I want to name for us as the people of God, particularly living in one of the most beautiful places in the nation. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here it is. in our Pacific Northwest culture, uh, I think as well as the broader culture in Western America, we are cr- surrounded by a great and a consistent story about creation, which is rat. And it's a story that's been pioneered for centuries alongside the God story, so it's pretty compelling. And um, there's a lens that culture gives us about creation that includes a ton of truth. It just does. And that truth keeps us from thinking that our vision at times is incorrect. But remember, it's the bends, the tiny little bends that we have to watch out for. So here's my observation a little bit of our current culture's lens around creation. I just want to name it again. I think it's a distortion we're up against but may not always be able to see. So here's what culture says. Nature is stunning. True? Especially right now. Amen? Because other times, no. Um, Nature is transcendent, even. Nature tells a story, and to that we all say yes, because that's true. But the defining moment or the bending moment is found at the end of that statement. And in the Pacific Northwest, culture or narrative usually ends uh, with a statement that says nature is also God. Or some kind of uh, presence of God. Now, that can, some of you in the room are like, I love, hike don't, I'm not coming for nature. I totally support you being there and doing all of that. How can you say that? I think we just need to name it because you don't have to look very far to see the worship of this in our city, particularly in this season. And you don't have to take a survey to know that many of us run to creation or nature before we run to God, that we run to nature for peace before we find peace in God, Nature, our area, or the place where we live, says that it is the pinnacle of life and that we can see this at least clearly expressed on weekends like today when the sun begins to shine or when the city rallies and chooses the lives of pets and plants and trees over the lives of people. Our culture has a narrative, particularly around creation or nature, that involves worship, And it's not all wrong. The statements they make, the observations they make, the invitations they invite us into, some of those things are good things. Because I think nature is insane and powerful and it does something to the soul. But we have to be quick to remember that it is not the creator of the soul. And when those lines for us get blurred is when worship, our worship gets distorted The language being poured out by creation isn't meant to be one way, which is how our culture experiences it. It's meant to evoke a response, and that response is to someone. Where this lens gets blurry and distorted for most of us is where we allow the wonder and power of creation to take us. Is it to the worship of the creator, or worship in creation, to creation? Now, That's just one thing. If I offended you, Josh would love to receive your emails. Um, I want to speak to just one other distortion I think we see, particularly in our area of the the world. And um, I cannot name this without naming it next to nature because these two things really do exist together, at least in our culture. Um, Because this isn't the only, nature isn't the only distortion that our city holds up, weird lens that they hold up in front of us. Now, I want you to just do a little experiment with me. Can you handle it? Oh, yeah, at least some of you can. Would you look to the right quickly for me? This is so fun because I see heads do two different things. It's from this perspective. It's like right, 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 you know. Uh, And then would you look to the left for a second? Now, this is um, probably not the most helpful exercise, but my my point is that hopefully you saw a human next to you. Did you? Ah, wonderful. I'm so glad you did. Um, because uh, the next distortion I want to talk about is humans. That one flopped, but, you know, in other spaces it's worked. Now, just like in nature, we live in a culture that has a distinct lens around us regarding one another. Humans are definitely broken and unpredictable and often disappointing, but we, all of us, when it really comes down to it, we have a propensity to worship the strength and wonder that we find in another over the strength and wonder we find in God even at small levels. And culturally, even though it comes laced in cynicism and criticism and sometimes war, humankind actually knows its value. There is a deep calling to deep reality here, but just like with any good created thing, there is, if not willing to consider the creator, a driving force to put creation in his place. Our culture often says, I am like God, which is true or false? True. We are like God. We were made in his image, and yet the distortion or the lens is when things begin to translate, and I am like God becomes I am God. Now, that seems dramatic. I totally know. But if you listen close enough to culture, you'll hear the reverb. Our culture says, I am God. I am I am like the created being. I can answer the question of my own creation. I can be what the creator has been to me. And all of that, while subtle, and it sounds so silly to even say out loud, it has been, since the garden, one of the most contested spaces in the spiritual life. We have to name it. The subtle distortion. Of our view of one another is something that maybe, while not always central to your current landscape or view, is there, always on the periphery, and having this way or this potential to blur what you are meant to see rightly. Both of these things, these lenses, these distortions have the ability to dull our perception of what actually is. And to hinder our ability to hear the language being spoken over us day after day after day. Now, unfortunately, that's not the only thing. Some of you are like, thank God, that part's over. Don't worry, it's going to get better. Uh, we live in a world, yes, of distorted images. And again, you're going to do your own work. And then we just talked about two other ones. But we also live in a world filled with distractions. I don't know if you know that. Uh, And while often, when we think about distractions intellectually, we think it's something we have power over, distractions are, in my opinion, one of the greatest obstacles to sight. Distractions, they come in all shapes and sizes. Distractions fit in our hands, and they fit in relationships and in the rhythms of our lives. They sit among us like the skyscrapers in downtown Portland. We, like those buildings, are surrounded by what we're meant to see but because of the lights around us and how they sit on the skyline, the fullness is never fully grasped. Distracted sight is not about being blind to what is before you, but about being preoccupied with something that prevents you from giving your full attention to the thing you're meant to see. I think David how he was in the wilderness. I think about him often in this context. I think about how he was likely stripped of what external distractions he might have had, but also likely filled with internal distractions. You know, the questions like, will I survive this? Will I ever be king? Will that lion come back? Will the men who are with me come to resent me? Will God ever rescue me? Distractions are both internal and external. And in David's Psalms and his poems, we see that there seems to be a decided moment when distraction is put aside and then sight is restored. So, what distracts you? What even when I asked you maybe to turn your head to the right or to the left came up within you? Did you have to set down your cell phone? Or did you have to stop the train of thought that was creating the grocery list for after the gathering? Been there. And what would you see if you weren't distracted? What would you see if, over the last two hours, your eyes could have been inhibited even as you were rushing out the door or maybe getting a text from a friend? We all have distractions, so I'm not saying that we never will because we won't. We always will. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't because it's not a should or shouldn't situation. But what I am saying is that often we miss what is right in front of us. Often we miss God's presence or his witness with us, his voice, because we've allowed others to take precedent. Distractions are much like the irritation in the eyes. They're not problematic per se, but long term they can keep us from seeing what we are meant to see. Now, I just have to tell you a quick story. I love to travel. In fact, I'm going to Europe in less than two weeks, which feels shocking. I was trying out this outfit today, if you were wondering. It's like, this is going to last, you know, sweaty and moving around, all that. So anyway, that's personal information, but I thought I'd share since we're family. Anyway, I love to travel. One of my favorite places on earth to travel, truly, above all other places I've traveled, is Ireland. And I don't know if it has something to do with all this. I don't know what it has to do but when i'm there i'm like this is god's country this is where i'm supposed to be this is the kingdom that's come i love their accents i love how crass they are in different ways they're just and not even truly crass but just a little crass with everything it's just kind of like Arr. and i just feel like i vibe Anyway, in October, I got to go to Northern Ireland, which I hadn't been to. I'd done a lot of the Southern Ireland, so we went to Belfast and around that area. It was amazing, and it was uh, quite the experiment, uh, experience, and then we went to what's called Giant's Causeway. The Giant's Causeway, have you heard of it? Anyway, if I had a picture, I should have posted it up there, but anyway. Um, anyway, we went to the Giant's Causeway, and I won't tell you who, but I was driving a van in Ireland and never driven on the other side of the car or the other side of the road, and we all survived, so high five. Uh, I'm going to give myself personal credit for that. Anyway, I didn't kill the people who were in the van, which would have been a big problem for Christian America. So I'm so glad that I didn't do that. Anyway, I remember getting out of the van, and um, the first thing I did was grab my phone. And I remember thinking... Um, Okay, now I've got to to capture this moment because I never want to forget it because I love Ireland. Anyway, when I opened my phone, I had a few texts that I needed to respond to. So I began to respond to some texts as we were making our way down to the Giant's Causeway. It's like half a mile down to it. So I thought, no big deal. And then anyway, I decided, oh, you're in nature. Look up. Look up. And so I did. And I was like, okay, I don't want to miss this. So I started taking a lot of pictures of just everybody. Everybody around me, every viewpoint from every viewpoint. I just was taking pictures all the way down to the causeway. Anyway, I get down to the causeway. It's just this insane space. And there's like this, anyway, the ground is made up of octagon something, trees or rocks. I have no idea. It's really stunning. So I'm taking pictures of that, then taking pictures of people around me, and then just trying to capture all the memories like everybody does and would. And I distinctly remember a moment when I... It was like the Lord almost slapped my phone out of my hand and just said, look, put your phone away, look up. Um, And I was so startled by it (laughs) because it was so aggressive in like the best way. And um, I just felt like he said to me, you've been asking to hear my voice, and I've had so much to say to you. I'm your husband. I know you love Ireland, and all of this, you know, not... Not that it's not for you, but it's for me, you know? And there was something God was trying to communicate to me in that moment that I might have missed if I had stayed centered on viewing the entire world through a tiny little screen. Often we get distracted by the things, even good things, of trying to capture memories and capture moments, whatever that looks like for you, whether it's on a phone or something else. And we miss out on what God has to say. I wonder how many of us, like me, are willing to trade moments of intimacy, moments we're actually desperate for because the backstory is I was desperate to hear God speak to me. And I was missing it the whole time. I just wonder how many of us are willing to trade those moments for moments of preoccupation. Or if we value getting the shot and telling the story ourselves rather than receiving the story from the one who is telling it. I just offer that to say, I think distraction is far more of an obstacle than many of us give, us give it credit for, or credit to, I don't know. Anyway, whatever, you know what I'm saying. And so it's something we as Jesus people have to be mindful of. Now, I'm almost done. Are you doing okay? It's turned out to be a lot longer teaching, but Josh isn't here, so it's like, whatever. All right, the final point is obstruction. Now, this is going to feel obvious to a lot of you, and I, and I want to go back to the metaphor that I started with uh, about disease or glaucoma. So not, I hope I'm not triggering anybody. Just stay with me. Um, you know, the obstruction I'm talking about here, at least when it comes to our sight of seeing God or listening for his voice, it usually isn't just an object plopped right in front of us. More often than not, obstruction is more like a disease that threatens the optic nerve it's usually something more subtle that actually hinders the eyes from functioning altogether. And I think for a lot of us, this looks like deep-seated pain or resentment, a preoccupation with brokenness that leads us to eventually lose our sight altogether. Maybe obstruction looks like loss for you or loneliness, so great that you've forgotten what it means to even look up. You know, pain has this way of forcing us inward, so we're not able to see what's around us. Maybe it looks like slow-growing bitterness that attacks the nerve that is needed to actually see. Maybe some of you have been like, I've been desperate to hear God's voice, and yet there is something in there that's actually hindering the nerve altogether that would allow you to see. Maybe it looks like specific trauma that you've experienced, old or new, blocking you from seeing who you actually are, or that freedom in sight is actually possible for you. In each of us lies the possibility of obstructed sight. All of us have what scientists call blind spots. All of us. And these are areas of our lives where we are actually meant to see, but we'll need to adjust our position to actually be able to see fully. Obstructed sight is often subconscious, but if not recognized, can cost us more than we know. For some, sight the way David saw means or will mean adjusting the mirrors. Or it will mean naming what you can't see in the hopes of seeing more fully. So, what are your blind spots? Where should you Or where do you know intellectually you should be able to see God, but you aren't? And where do you want to see, but you can't seem to catch a glimpse? And what do you need to do to gain a little more sight? Sight, as we've talked about it today, means recognizing God around us, reflected to us in all that he's created. And while so much of what we see in the world is found in nature, so much more, as I pointed out just a second ago, is found in one another. In Genesis 2, we find what I'm calling our third movement, an invitation to see again. Now, after hearing what I just shared, often there's a desire in us to be like, I really do want to make sure I'm seeing the way I'm meant to see And so usually we jump right into what we think we should do, jump right back into the spaces we think we should go. But I think there's something for us in Genesis 2 that invites us to see again, but maybe see differently. Now you're familiar with this. In Genesis 2, we read about man's first experience with woman. As God creates this perfect utopia this place that is meant to in every way reflect him, his glory. He, he creates nature, land, water, animals, sun, moon, sky, day and night. And still at the end of all of that, there is something greater still to be created, he says, that reflects my glory. Or that's my summary of it. There's something more that God creates to reflect or to see or to hear him most clearly. And then we read that God creates man, and woman. And I want you to see what happens when he does. Genesis 2, 22 through 23. You don't necessarily have to turn there. It might be on the screen. Sure is. Well done, everybody. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Verse 23 isn't your normal biblical rhetoric. It is, in fact, poetry. God creates humans as the height of his creation. And instead of bursting out in poetic song at the sunrise or the roar or strength of a lion, Adam only does so at the creation of woman, at the creation of another human. Because in her, it, he finds his own reflection, his own glory. He finds God's glory. So I wonder if our invitation to see again isn't just layered in nature, where for so many of us it would be safer, but it's also found in one another. When was the last time you looked at someone and you really saw them? When was the last time you looked at your best friend or your husband or your wife and you had sight? We are, like Romans 1 said, without excuse when it comes to finding God's voice all around us. If we are on this earth, which, newsflash, you are. You are breathing and living. And with that, you are undoubtedly being invited to see God. God is speaking to us through the world around us, through the person next to us. The question that we've been asking through this teaching is, are we listening? Now, if your answer is anything like mine, it won't be an emphatic yes, though you wish it would, especially if you're type A. Um, But maybe your answer is more of a mix like mine is of, like, sometimes, and I want to. Listening or seeing, just like any relationship, is something you have to cultivate, something you have to choose to do again and again. So if you're going to learn to hear God's voice through his creation, you're going to have to do the same thing, do just that. You're going to have to cultivate Hearing it. So, how do you do that? Well, I'm so glad you asked, and I promise I'm wrapping up right here. Um, Three things, three invitations for you. The first is to slow down. Um, Have you ever been running out of the, you know, I don't know where your garage is or your kitchen is or whatever, but kind of someone's talking to you and you have to go, and so you're kind of running out the door and they say something to you and (laughs) no idea what they said, but you get in the car anyway and act like, cool, no problem. Have you ever? Okay, yeah, totally. Me too. And um, there's this thing about the frenetic pace that we keep. You know, it's not just that. It's like there's other times when people are talking to me and they're saying probably things that are really meaningful, but my mind is frenetically running to and fro from the experience I had just a few minutes ago or from the things I need to do that I still need to get done that this person is occupying space and keeping me from thinking about that. And they're saying something to me and I have no idea what they said. Anyone? Yeah, there's like something to pace that keeps us from actually being able to see or here, and so my point is just this if we want to see an experience we want sight we want to see what God's doing we should at the very least slow down even if it's for just five minutes a day just five minutes of slow down see what you can see hear what you can hear if you're moving frenetically if you're moving at a fast pace you're more likely to miss what God might be speaking to you and so the invitation to us is to slow down now next and um, this is a biggie Listen for the cues. Here's the thing about God. He understands we're all practically toddlers. No offense to toddlers, but that's basically how your brains are working. You really are less intelligent than you think. Welcome to church. And I often think about how my sister was a Montessori school teacher, and uh, I think about preschool teachers. One time my sister told me that a kid did not know how to go on their tippy toes yet because their brain hadn't learned that or something. I don't know how it all works. Anyway, I was like, what? What? We don't know how to do that yet. You have to learn that, turns out. Anyway, God is like this, where he's like, hey, this is red. And we're like, red. And he's like, and this is red. And we're like, what color is that? And he's like, it's red, it's red, it's red, right? He's helping us. And this is a red train, and this is a red stop sign. These are red things, red. This is what red is. This is what red. And he's so kind. And here's the thing. We are so dense that sometimes we miss him. And what he's done is be so gentle with us and basically say, look, this body that is hungry right now is a witness to you of your spiritual hunger for me. There are cues all around us. The the temperature that changes in the room tells me that, that I am alive and able to be attentive to the movement, not just of the air flowing in this room, but of his spirit. There are cues all around us. We live in Portland, which is very different than Florida, where I grew up. There are no seasons in Florida. There's just one. And uh, in February, you can grow strawberries. That's all I know. It's a little bit cooler, but that's all we do. Living here, there is so much witness in creation through the seasons. We were just talking about it earlier. I think Cam was mentioning it even as he was sharing his prophetic words, but there's something about the seasons that are cues to us of the nature of God, the ways that he speaks, the ways that he's coming for us, the ways that how everything dies and then again it lives. There's a witness in creation to us as people if we'll just listen for the cues. It's why most of us follow the church calendar because we follow the rhythm that again is a cue to us of the story we're living in day in and day out and it calls to us to live more faithfully and more confident in who it is that God's made us to be as his people. There are cues all around you that we'll miss if we're not paying attention. I am um, a wonderful sleeper. This is more information than you've ever wanted to know. I sleep with a full face of makeup on every night. No joke, it's not good. Don't tell me things I already know. I see a dermatologist and it's untouched by the time I wake up in the morning. Some of you are like, what? And I'm not joking, this escalated when I started hearing birds out my window every morning. So I'm literally, I wake up, I'm not joking. I have my hand like this every morning (laughs) on my back, perfect makeup. And the birds start singing. So yes, I'm a real life Disney princess. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, I was so annoyed about the birds out my window for a long time until I felt like God said to me one morning, it's me singing a new song over you every morning. A melody that bears witness to who I am. There's cues all around us. If we'll just listen, God the great toddler teacher <laughs> is teaching us to listen again and again and again. Finally, this is all an invitation. He is so not dogmatic. God when he speaks is not forceful or intrusive. He's not overlapping or overspeaking to you. He's inviting you to hear him and what you have to do the third movement is receive the invitation if you want to hear. I think we assume so much God should just burst through the door but he's not like that as we heard at Bible school VBS in particular God is a gentleman and he's non-intrusive or abusive or harmful and he is patient but we have to receive and say yes to the invitation so that's what we're leaning into tonight the question is God is or the the reality is God is speaking the question is are you listening Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.